This is part two of our talk about sex in our series on relationships. And uh, by way of a little bit of review, I briefly mentioned the purpose of sexuality as the Bible understands it last week. So we're going to start with a little little review. I I didn't go into this very much, but last week we talked about various lies that our culture and even the church at times tell us about sex and what it's for and where it came from. I posted that episode on the podcast, Belmont RUF, you can find that. Um, And I said, you know, unfortunately a lot of the teaching that you get about sexuality, even from the church, tends to focus on rules. And most of the questions that you tend to get um, as a pastor, particularly from high school students and college students, have to do with rules and what can I do and how far can I go. And I said that, you know, what the Bible says actually in Colossians 2, for example, is that trying to make up rules and trying to live your life by figuring out what the rules are and how to follow them is really not the biblical way of thinking about living a full and fulfilling human life. It's not what we were made for. We were made to be in relationship with God. And not that there aren't certain uh, ways of living that are important that should characterize that relationship. To basically just think that we were made to obey the rules, like that's God's ultimate goal, is a bunch of people who run around obeying the rules, is really to demean and to devalue what the Bible says human beings were made for. So if some of you have grown up in churches where basically your understanding of what it means to be human that was kind of implicitly or maybe even explicitly taught to you was that your purpose in life is to obey God's rules, I'm really sorry about that because that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that you were made to be in rich, passionate relationship with the one who describes himself not only as your maker, but as your husband. And that's a pretty remarkable thing in Isaiah, where God says your maker is your husband. Because most people just would never put those two ideas together. You have, you know, some Christians who really like the idea that God is God and he's sovereign and he made us and he tells us what to do. And then there's other people that really like the idea that God is a God of love and he just is crazy about me. Um, The Bible actually says both of those things are true at the same time. And if you don't understand the two of those things together, you really seriously distort what the Bible says, not only about God, but about you. John Calvin said many, many years ago that um, the two most important things to know, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man, are always linked. That if you don't know who God is, you can't really know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, it will be reflected in your understanding of God. So the two are always linked, and that's because the Bible says we were made in his image. So if we don't want to just sort of try to figure out what are the rules, how are we to approach the issue of sex biblically and wisely? And I would argue that you have to start with what is the purpose of sexuality. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into this topic for tonight. Lord, we do thank you that you have not left us wondering what you made us for, but you have given us your word. And tonight, as we come to this issue of sexuality, we thank you that you have spoken and you've not stuttered. We pray that you'd help us 
to understand what sex is for, what we are for, and what you've destined us for. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. And to that end, please send your spirit. Amen. So, you know, the Bible has several things that it says about sex. There's not just one thing that it's about. Uh, I mentioned there is some disagreement among Catholic and Protestant theologians about the purpose of sexuality. The Catholic Church teaches that the purpose of sexuality is procreation. But the Protestants understand procreation is one of three purposes of sex. I side with the Protestants on this view. I am a Protestant. Um, and so the procreation is certainly there. In Genesis chapter 1, um, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. And then it says that Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. So there you see that that is one of the purposes of sex. And it's obvious I don't need to belabor the point. Uh, but the second point is probably one that is surprising, particularly to people both outside of the church and those who've been raised in the church, particularly more conservative churches. The Bible teaches that God has given us sex for fun, to be enjoyable, for recreation. If you want to look at the scripture passage, we mentioned this more in detail uh, last week, but 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from marriage and from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And he goes on and he tells Timothy, if you point this out to the brethren, you're a good minister of Christ Jesus. That part of what it means to be a good pastor is to tell people that sex and food are good. And that people should enjoy it and receive it with thanksgiving as a good gift from God. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, you don't have to watch very many movies or read many uh, novels to understand that most people do not picture pastors as advocating good food and good sex. It's just not the picture we have of pastors. It's not the picture we have of Christians either. And that's unfortunate because it's clearly there in the Bible. Now, there's a long history of Christians really struggling with this teaching. St. Augustine is a very important thinker in the history of Christianity. He taught that sex was a necessary evil. That it was something necessary to propagate the race. We need to have children, so we have to have sex. But if you enjoy it at all, that enjoyment is sinful. He also has one of the greatest quotes ever from a Christian thinker um, about sex, where he prays in his confessions, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> not yet. Let me enjoy this a little bit longer. Um, there's almost a sense of, I want to want that, but even that I don't want yet, right? But honestly, you know, the Bible is very pro-sex. The Song of Solomon is frankly, pretty erotic love poetry. And it's there in the Bible. Now, many of the English translations translate in ways that are more ambiguous. Um, I was looking on Bible Gateway today to see how different translations handled Song of Solomon 5.14. Um, Tim Keller, in his recent book on marriage, um, translates it with the word abdomen, but he makes sure that you understand that that's a euphemism 
when it talks about, you know, when the woman uh, says, my lover, she's talking about her lover, and she says that his abdomen is like an ivory tusk. And you don't need too much imagination to talk, figure out what that's talking about. Does that freak you out that that's in the Bible? Yes. Description of male genitalia in the Bible, okay? So that probably kind of rocks the world of a lot of people. And it's unfortunate that when people think about Christians, they think, well, those people would never talk about that sort of thing. And yet it's in the Bible, right? It's in the Bible. Go look it up. Though I tell you, if you look it up, uh, most of the English translations merely say Bible. They don't even say abdomen. Um, but it's even, more, um, it's even more than that. Say body. Say body. Did I say Bible? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, most of the translations, yeah, they say body. Yeah, they say body. Yeah, the Bible's like an ivy tusk. I don't know. Well, all right, I'm going to stop before I get in trouble. So, um, I would say, yeah, I know. Somebody was going to say that. I knew. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, the other purpose that, that the Bible tells us section is for is for bonding. And the way I think of it is it's covenant cement. That's a phrase that Tim Keller uses that I think is very helpful. Sex is a unitive act. So the way Tim Keller says it this way, sex is a way of cementing and enabling relationships of complete oneness. It is God's appointed way to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Marriage is a covenant. And it's interesting, there are two different Hebrew words for to know. And the word yada uh, is the word used for sex in marriage back there in Genesis when it says that Adam knew Eve. And it's a word that, that refers not just to sex, but to knowing in a full holistic way. And therefore you understand that when Adam knew Eve, sex was involved, but it wasn't merely sex. That there's a unity and a oneness that transcends mere sexual encounter that is God's design for sexuality in marriage. And I think, you know, this is why a lot of marriage counselors will tell you that if you have a couple in a, in a married relationship and they're having problems in their sex life, it's probably not really their sex life that's the problem. That, in other words... Sex life problems are always relationship problems because sex is a way of speaking and communicating. And you're saying something with it that is coming out of the way you relate to one another. Yeah, Keller goes even so far as to say this, and again, you know, getting at the idea that sex is more than just physical experience. He says, eventually the thing that is sexually arousing in marriage is to feel understood, fully known, and fully accepted. And sexy underwear, he says, doesn't matter nearly as much. Now, God even goes so far as to tell married couples, this is a remarkable thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells married couples that they're not allowed to quit having sex except by mutual consent and even then, if they both agree to quit having sex, they can only do it for a season. Now, do you, do you understand how crazy that is to think about? Compared to what we think, we think if there's anything that's ours to do with what we want, it's our sexuality. But the Bible is so radical, it says, no, when you become married, your body is not your own, but it belongs to your wife or to your husband. 
And not only that, you have to answer to God with what you do with your sexuality. He created it to be a way of saying, I belong to you. And even if you don't feel like saying that, you need to say it regularly. It's a pretty interesting thing. And what, part of what that means is sex is not just something that's about feelings and it's not just something that's about fun. Yes, it's fun, but it's not something that is merely fun. It's a way of saying, I belong to you, and you need to say it regularly. It also shows us why when you have sex outside of marriage, or you use your sexuality in ways that are not designed to say to another person, I belong to you, then you violate the intrinsic meaning of sexuality, right? In other words, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're having sex, but you're not married, what you're saying is, I don't love you enough to marry you. I don't love you enough to say I'm completely yours. Oh, yes, I'm saying it with my body, but I'm not saying it to you before God and these witnesses. I'm not saying that I belong to you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, no matter what comes. And therefore, you're saying one thing with your body that you're not willing to say with the rest of your life. And honestly, it, you know, survey after survey, study after study show that married people have better sex and more frequent sex. And you would never get that from the popular culture. But it's just demonstrably true, and it has been forever. That's why I used that quote last week. If you wanted to sell something on the market that said this would you know, help you live longer, give you better sex life, more frequent sex. If you could bottle that and sell it, you'd make a fortune. And there is such a product. It's marriage. Now, again, that doesn't mean that every marriage is happy and that the sex is good. But in general, married people have more and more satisfying sex than single people. Because there is something about how God has made us. He's made sex as a way of saying within a context and when you're saying it in every aspect of your life, I belong to you and you belong to me. And ultimately, that's what it's for. And I would say part of the thing that gives me great hope, and I tell couples this when we do premarital counseling, if one or the other or both of them have had sex, what you need to understand is if you've been using sex to say something differently, When you come together in marriage and start using it to say the right thing, there is kind of a healing that begins to happen. When you begin to to live the way God intended, it does fit with who you are. Uh, The way Tim Keller puts it sometimes is when you break God's laws, they break you. Not because God is a cosmic killjoy, but he's made you for something. Uh, Palmer was telling me that she's going to go over to Labrie this summer which is really a cool thing. It's a, a place where you can go and just wrestle with your questions and have um, time to just sort of think about things. But one of the things that's interesting about this place, Brie, is a lot of people come there who are very confused and, and almost you, you would almost describe them as so strung out on sort of nihilism and despair to where they, they, they can't even hardly function. Jaron Bars, who teaches at Covenant Seminary, used to tell stories about how sometimes they would get people at Labrie who were so confused and so skeptical about whether you could say anything true at all that they almost couldn't function and couldn't communicate. And he said, you know, the thing that helped them the most was not to argue with them or have a discussion with them about epistemology and about truth and about the Bible, but honestly, what was best and what they would always do first is put them to work in the garden. 
Because there's something so basic about working in a garden, that what God made us for, that it begins to be a way to get back to what it means to be human and begins to bring healing and rightness back into their life. And I think there's something about sex and marriage that when you begin to use it the right way. So if you've used sex in a way to say something other than I belong to you and I'm married to you, don't despair. Because when you begin to live your sexuality in marriage the way God designed, it has a healing kind of power to it because you're in touch with what God made you for. It doesn't mean that it just is a quick fix and everything's fine, but there is something there. What about you? What about you and sexuality? My friend Steve Garber says, this really is where the rubber meets the road with college students today. Will God's word define what you do with your sexuality? Now, I will say, if you're struggling with things, sexual addiction, pornography, um, or you've been, you know, violated, raped, what, all, all the kinds of, listen, in a room like this side, all of those stories are in this room. And, and I do say that I really would love for you to talk to me, talk to, to Wendy or Molly or Chase. Don't suffer in silence. Please let this be a community where you can find hope and healing, right? God is a refuge. God understands what it's like. That passage we read in Hebrews, I love, that God, that Jesus came as a high priest who can empathize with us. He was stripped naked and publicly humiliated because he loved his people. And he can be trusted. If you've used to use sex, and honestly, everyone in this room has to one degree or another, real healing is possible. But the Bible doesn't promise a quick fix. I posted an article that I think is really helpful and really commend all of you to read. It's by David Pallison. It's called Making All Things New, Restoring Joy to the Sexually Broken. It's a talk that he gave at a conference John Piper helped put together from this book, Sex and the Supremacy of God. But you can also just Google that and you can find it and download it for free. And I put a link on the Belmont RUF Facebook page. But I wanted to share a couple things he said. He said, you know, as he's a counselor, a biblical counselor. And as he works with people at various issues of sexual brokenness, he says, you know, when it, when it comes to fighting against this, so often people are looking for like the quick fix They're sort of running from this book to that book to this article to that article to somebody that will kick them in the butt enough that they'll finally kind of get their act together and quit doing that. I find so often when people are struggling with pornography, for instance, that they'll like be trying really hard and maybe they, you know, go a week or two without falling and then they fall again and it becomes the complete thing that dominates their sense of whether or not they love God. There's all kinds of, of... issues, and I found some of this wisdom that I wanted to share with you. He said, the first thing you need to understand about fighting against sexual brokenness is that it's longer, wider, and deeper than we think. It's a longer war than we think. I won't read all this, but, but follow with me if you will. I, I put a lot of this on there so you could read it. He says, one key to fighting well is to lengthen your view of the battles. And I would say this goes not only for sexual sin, but for everything. If you think that one week of shock and awe combat will win this war, you are bound for disappointment. If you're looking for some quick fix, an easy answer, a one-and-done solution, 
then you'll never really understand the nature of the honest fight. If you promise, he's talking to people that might be involved in counseling, if you promise one-for-all victories to others, then you'll never be much help to other strugglers. And he says, consider two specific implications of this idea that it's a longer war. First, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, is a direction you are heading. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a book, he calls it a long obedience in the same direction. And that's a great phrase to remember when you're thinking about, am I growing? It's not, have I arrived? But what direction am I heading? Uh, Chuck Swindoll, years ago when I was in college, I stumbled across a book of his that was titled Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. And a lot of people just don't seem to think it should be that way. They just seem to think, if I could figure out the key, if I could sort of figure out what I'm supposed to do, well, I'd just do it. And I would sort of succeed at this like I have everything else in my life that I've put my willpower towards. For a lot of people, like sexual issues are one of the first times that they actually really need to depend on the grace of God. And it freaks them out because they don't know what to do with feeling like a failure all the time. And I would say, let it be a doorway into understanding what the gospel is really for. (laughs) Because the gospel is for people who are failures every day. Not for people who, for the most part, have got it all together, but every once in a while need a little help. And if you think that's all the grace you need, then brothers and sisters... Sexual sin is not your biggest problem. It really isn't. It really isn't. He also says, remember that repentance, repentance is a lifestyle you're living. You know, the Protestant Reformation was a pretty hugely significant event. It started when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. The first of those 95 theses, these issues that Martin Luther wanted Christians to debate was that the Christian life is a life of repentances, plural. Not one and done. I just repent, I have this big sort of monumental turning of my life, and then I just continue on the straight and narrow. No, the Christian life, he says, is a life of repentances. And in a little uh, book or sort of uh, paper that he wrote explaining what he meant about this, he said these words, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth and righteousness. He's talking about this idea of the direction and the continual need for, for repenting. He says it's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory but all is being purified. And honestly, here's one of the hard things for y'all because you're all perfectionists, but you have to get used to the feeling of feeling like a failure who has a big God who loves failures, right? And if you don't want that, I'm sorry, you can't follow Jesus. So this is really serious. You can't, there's no sort of end run around this. Like I want to be a Christian, but I also want to feel really good about myself all the time. no. If you're a Christian, you're going to trust in a Savior who was crucified, who was tortured, because that's what you deserved. I don't know, but do you feel really good about that? (laughs) This is what I deserved. I I remember A.W. Tozer years ago saying, you know, 
so often we think, you know, Christianity is this great little deal where God does all the dying and we just sort of say, great, thank you, pat ourselves on the back for choosing such a, a great path and then we run off and live however we want. No, Christianity is designed to make you remember that you deserve death and hell, but you receive life and mercy and grace. So it's a longer war than you think. It's also a wider war. And, and what he means by this, he, he uses this analogy. I, I won't read all these words because I want to read an illustration of this rather than the words I put on here. But he says, imagine if you, um, you know, if sexual sin is like a movie that's playing like at the Hollywood 27. Like so often we think that our sexual sin that we're currently struggling with is the only movie playing in our life. But he says, as soon as you start really talking to people, you find that there's all these other screens playing movies about all this other sin. And unfortunately, one of the things that happens is we think that the only thing that really matters is what's going on with our sexuality. I passed out this other little thing to you, and I read a, uh, want to read a little section of this, because I think this, as an example, would be really helpful. So um, this is, he talks about meeting with a guy named Tom. Now, Tom came to Dr. Pallison to talk to him about his uh, use of pornography and chronic masturbation. And he was a guy in Dr. Pallison's church, and so he came to talk to him. And they started talking about his use of pornography, and Dr. Pallison said, well, I want you to make a log, basically make a log of every time you fall. Every time you're tempted and then fall into using pornography, I want you to make a log and come back in two weeks. And Tom said, well, basically, I don't even need to keep a log. I can tell you when it happens. I can tell you. He basically says, um, I only fall on Friday or Saturday nights, usually Friday, since Saturday is right before Sunday. And if, Pallison says, if you have any pastoral counseling genes at all, you perk up at this and say, oh, here's a pattern. Patterns are always indicative of something. And the guy goes on and he says, uh, you know, or Pallison says, I asked him, why does sexual sin surface on Friday night? What's up with Friday night? What's going on with that? And Tom says, well, that's the night I go out and buy Playboy magazine as my temper tantrum at God. Ding, ding, ding. What's going on here? Amazing, he says. Look what we just found out. Another movie is playing, not just Playboy magazine on screen number one, but there's another movie playing at a theater next door. Now we're not only dealing with a couple of bad behaviors, buying pornography and masturbating, now we're dealing with anger at God that drives these behaviors. What's that about? Tom goes on, he says, to give a fuller picture. See, I come home from work on Friday night, back to the apartment, I'm all alone. I imagine that all my single friends are out on dates, and my married friends are spending time with their wives, but I'm all alone in my apartment. I build up a good head of steam of self-pity, then by 9 or 10 o'clock, I think, you deserve a break today. I even hear the little McDonald's jingle in my head, and then sexual desires start to look really, really sweet. God has cheated you. If only I had a girlfriend or a wife can't stand how I feel. Why not feel good for a while? What does it matter anyway? And then I hop in the car, I head to 7-Eleven, and I fall into sin. Amazing, isn't it? See, 
Pallison says, pornography and masturbation grabbed all the attention, generated all the guilt, defined the moment and act of falling. Let's call that screening room number one, but we've also heard about anger at God that proceeds and legitimizes sexual sin. That's screening in room number two. We've heard about hours of low-grade self-pity, grumbling, and envious fantasies. A matinee performance in screening room number three. We've heard Tom name the original desire that leads to self-pity, to anger at God, and finally to sexual lust. God owes me a wife. I need, I demand a woman to love me. That's playing in screening room front of four. And he goes on and on and on, and you can read the rest of this. The point being, and this is what I've seen in my own life and dealing with our people, often we try to deal with sexual sin directly, and it's usually never the way that, it, that help comes. Because it's usually always connected to other things. And honestly, a lot of times the other things are much more serious. Do you think it's more serious to masturbate or to hate God? Seriously. If you're honest, most of you would say to masturbate. But I don't think the Bible would agree with you. And that's a big problem. And I would say it's also blocking your path to healing. I'm not saying it's no issue. But being angry at God, that's a big issue. He goes on and talks about how it's a deeper war. That Bible, the Bible says behavior is never just about behavior, and you can read uh, about that. But he, he talks about how there's all these other things that sometimes we're using sexuality for. Like sexual sin is usually not just about sexual sin. Looking at pornography, hooking up, making out, whatever it is, it's usually not just about that. He goes on, just consider a few of these. Uh, often we use sex as an angry desire for revenge, a longing for love and approval, a thrilling desire for power and the excitement of the chase. See, all of these things are things that become substitute gods that you're longing for, and sex becomes the way to get these other things. A distorted messianic desire to be helpful. He says that's generally how pastors fall. A desire for rest and relief in the pressures of life. And I see that with Belmont students a lot. That idea that God owes me a break and, you know, everything's so difficult. But at least for a few minutes, I can forget about all that and feel alive. So, you know, there's a lot going on with all this stuff. And I, I put some other things on here. Let me just say a, a couple more things about, particularly about sexual addiction and about masturbation. Uh, one of the things that was a real remarkable revelation to me, it was, I got this from this guy Harry Schomburg in his book False Intimacy, is that so often pornography and masturbation, sexual addiction of that kind, is almost never just about sex. It usually is about feeling alive. And it usually is particularly difficult when you've sort of shut off or have run away from real intimacy, which comes with vulnerability. See, what's really fascinating is in our fantasy life, and particularly like the way we use pornography and masturbation, usually we're in control, we feel alive, but we don't feel vulnerable. And that's why his book is titled False Intimacy, that there's a desire to have intimacy without the vulnerability and the possibility of being hurt. I think there's a great insight there. 
And so often, see, what happens is you're just trying really, really hard not to lust. But in actuality, what's really going on is you're not loving anybody. You can't just stop lusting. Honestly, like the thing that's helped me was beginning to open up and move towards another person. Open myself up to real relationships where I could be hurt, but where I could also um, rejoice with those who rejoiced. It's sort of counterintuitive. In other words, a frontal assault against sexual sin, pornography, masturbation, generally isn't the most helpful thing. And that's why it's so important to see what's screening in all these other theaters. Because there's all these things that are going on in your life. And one of the great lies of the devil is to make you think that sexual sin is your worst issue and get you to not even think about what you're doing with God and his gospel. So I think that's worth pondering. And that's where he gets down to here. Where do we go from here? Two thoughts, and then we'll split up again and have some time for Q&A. Um, this is what Pallison said, and, I, and again, I, I've found this in my own life and in people I've been working with. Often the way of healing is somewhat counterintuitive. Sexual sin is serious. Here's the way I would say this. Sexual sin is serious, but it's not ultimate. It doesn't ultimately define you. It doesn't ultimately define you, but yet it's serious, right? We looked at that passage last week. He who has sex with a prostitute unites himself to a prostitute. And that's different than other kinds of sin. It's serious, but it's not ultimate, and it's not bigger than God and his grace. Here's the way Pallison says it. When we're living in sexual sin or swamped in unredeemed sexual sufferings, because he would say whether you've been sinned against or whether you're the, you know, um, the, the, the sinner, um, it tends to be the same in this regard. That you live in your own head. Sin pulls us into an incurving, self-absorbing inertia. Martin Luther said sin was that inward curvature of the soul. He says we shut God out. The universe becomes all about me. Suffering tends to have the same effect. But Jesus suffers in the exact opposite way. Opening out to God in need. As Jesus starts to rearrange how your personhood operates, you are becoming a qualitatively different kind of person. You operate differently. He teaches a life lived in God's direction. He teaches you how to talk out everything that matters with the one whose opinion most matters, the only one who can do something about it all. In other words, what he's arguing is one of the reasons that sexual sin has such a lock on your life is because you don't know how to have a relationship with God. You don't know how to talk to him about your suffering and your disappointment and your brokenheartedness. And you've not worked that out before him in an intimate way. And therefore, you're locked in shame. You're locked in guilt. And in the midst of that, you still want to feel alive. And so there's this catch-22 he goes on. He says that the way Jesus loves is the diametric opposite from how sexual sin works. Whether flagrant or atmospheric, whether copulatory or imaginary, sexual sin is hate. You ever think of it that way? It misuses people. 
Jesus' love treasures and serves our sexual purity. We misuse a gift when we do not treasure and serve the sexual purity of others. We degrade ourselves and degrade others. As Jesus starts to rearrange how you treat people, you're becoming a qualitatively different kind of person. This may, that, that's not just theoretical. What he's saying is to get to the root of sexual sin, you have to unmask it for what it really is. It's hating other people and hating God. And while that may seem like really a depressing thing to say, honestly, I think that when you begin to understand what's really going on is when you finally can get to a place of repentance. Because so often we're sort of like caught in these little eddies. You know, if you've got a stream and, you know, there's these little eddies over here that are, you're just focusing on this, but you're never looking at, why do, why do I hate God and hate people? And I want everything to be about me. And I'm so furious that it, won't, that it can't be. That I'm bound and determined to do whatever I want as a way to say, screw you to God. Now, here's the thing. If you're a Christian, even as ugly as that is, and seeing that in your heart, as ugly as that is, it didn't make Jesus turn away from you. And he's not going to turn away from you now just because you see it. He's always seen it. Right? Isn't that what we started with in Hebrews? There's nothing hidden from his eye. He sees all of that stuff about you and about me. And he loves us anyway. And he's committed to complete the good work he began. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are long-suffering, jealous, and a God of dogged perseverance. It's our only hope. And we pray that it would enliven our hope, wake up our joy, stir real longings, and hope that we can be fully known and fully loved as we can be in the gospel. Pray this in Jesus' name.